This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Fluidyme. Fluidyme partners with life science researchers and enterprises to provide simplified workflows for genomics and proteomics applications. Whether your quest is to understand the profiles and functions of single cells or to meet high throughput high throughput DNA or data demands of a production scale laboratory, you'll find a solution at fluidime.com. Today's presentation is titled, Know the Players, Combinatorial Single Cell Approaches to Explore the Complexity of Biological Systems and is being presented by Dr. Manisha Ray, a single cell analysis expert at Fluidime Corporation, and Dr. Jonathan Irish, an assistant professor in the Department of Cancer Biology at Vanderbilt University. Manisha joined Fluidime in 2012 and has been working on single cell analysis in the C1 system since its development. She has extensive experience working with a wide range of single cell questions, including adapting challenging cell types to the C1, developing new workflows, and assisting with data analysis guidance. Jonathan trained in cancer biology, immunology, and computational biology at Stanford. His lab at Vanderbilt studies how signaling governs healthy cell development and human disease outcomes. His laboratory specializes in using single-cell tools to target signaling networks and dissect immune interactions of rare cells and human tissue biopsies obtained over time during therapy. Jonathan is also the co-creator of Cytobank cloud software for single-cell data analysis. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Manisha and Jonathan at the end. So now, over to you, Manisha for the, and Jonathan for the presentation. Great, thank you for the nice introduction, and thank you all for joining us today. I'm gonna to give a little bit of an intro to the various technologies that Fluidime uses for single cell research. So there's a little bit of context for the actual interesting biology that Jonathan's gonna talk about. So at Fluidime, we think that single cell research is vital to understanding pretty much every system in the body. The reason we think it's so important, and you know, the research field thinks this is so important, is that uh, there's a huge amount of heterogeneity present in every single tissue in the body. And without understanding that heterogeneity, it's very difficult to understand uh, the biological process, processes that are going on. So for example, um, if you wanted to know the different types of cells present in a tissue, once you know that information, if you wanted to compare the types of cells present in a healthy versus a disease state, or if you wanted to know how any of these cell types developed, it's very difficult and unreliable without doing this type of research at the single cell level. The reason why I say it's unreliable can be shown in this graph here. So here's an example of some data that was produced on one of our systems, the Biomark system by qPCR, where they were looking at the correlation of many genes, and two were shown here. So in the figure you see here, they looked at the correlation of two genes in pools of 100 cells. So not a huge number of cells, 100 cells. And the answer appears to be very clear, that there's 100% correlation between these two genes. But when we look at them at the single cell level, you can see that the picture is much more complicated. When you look at the co-expression of these two genes in one cell, what you can see is that very few of them are actually co-expressed, only 2%. The majority are not expressed in either, 
in at the same time in any cell, and uh, the rest of the time either one gene is expressed or the other. So you get a much more accurate and a much more granular picture of what's going on in type inside a cell when you can look at things one at a time. And this can go a long way to understanding the heterogeneity present in all of these different tissues in the body. Um, in addition to understanding the heterogeneity, this type of research is really accelerated and done in a much more robust and powerful way when you can use a lot of cells and a lot of parameters. The more cells you can look at, the more confidence you can have in your answer, the more likely you are to find rare outliers and interesting cell types, and the more parameters you look at, the more information you can get out of a cell. So for example, if you wanted to look at, let's say, B-cell receptor signaling, it's a huge complicated pathway. And without looking, when you generally with technology, you would have to pick a few of the proteins present in this pathway to study. Uh, Fluidime is really specialized in providing products that allow you to look at many cells and many parameters from each one of those cells. So you could look at every member of this pathway at the same time from the same cell. We have three platforms that we primarily use for single cell research, and I'm going to give a brief overview of all three of them. The C1 single cell autoprep system is used to capture and prepare cells for downstream single cell analysis. It's uh, primarily used to generate genomic material from single cells. The Biomark HD system is a real-time PCR instrument that's very sensitive and very robust, uh, robust enough to detect things at a single copy level from a single cell and you can look at up to 96 genes from each one of those single cells by qPCR. And the Helios mass cytometers are uh, most recent generation of our Cytos system, which enables you to look at dozens of proteins simultaneously from millions of cells. So each one of these lets you look at a lot of cells and a lot of parameters up to the entire genome or transcriptome from each one of those cells. So to go into a little more detail of the C1 system, it's, uh, it's a instrument plus an integrated fluidic circuit or chip that allows you to automate all of the steps that go into processing single cells. So the actual um, work is done on one of our microfluidic chips, which you can see here. And each one of these chips is basically a series of chambers. Chambers for capture are shown here. Each one of these little butterfly shapes can capture a single cell, which you can then visualize and stain an image under a microscope. And each cell is individually lice for doing an RNA workflow, reverse transcribed, and then amplified and that resulting cDNA can be used for a variety of applications. So the C1 takes away all of the technical variability that would go into manually processing these things by hand. And because everything that happens in the chip is microfluidic, the volumes are much sm smaller, so the reactions are much more efficient. You don't lose any of the material in that cell. So the, the uh, robustness of a single cell workflow is increased dramatically by doing it inside the C1. We've recently launched a new IFC or chip for the C1 called the RNA-Seq HT chip that allows you to do eight times the number of cells, so 800 cells per chip, for basically the same price. There are two cell loading inlets, so you can run two populations of cells, say a treated and untreated population, simultaneously on the same chip. The cells are barcoded on the chip and then pooled, so you can um, save time and money in sequencing as well and it retains all of the workflow benefits and automation of the original C1 chip. So you can basically profile, you can get a good sense of the profile of an entire tissue with one chip using this new HT chip. Uh, downstream of the C1, we have our Biomark platform, which is used for real-time PCR. It's very sensitive and it's very flexible. Not only can you do uh, single cell qPCR on this, you can do regular qPCR, and you can also do the um, preparation for bulk 
bulk workflows like genotyping and other types of genomic workflows. Again, each one of our systems is an instrument plus a chip, which is shown here. You on one of these chips, you can run 96 cells, and from each one of those cells, you can prepare the seed, the uh, the qPCR information from 96 genes from each one. And that's because we have uh, thousands of little chambers inside each one of these chips that allow you to process all of the cells and all the genes in parallel. So it's very information dense. With very little work, you get a ton of qPCR information back out. The C1 and Biomark work together to form a really nice workflow. You can prepare your cells. You can amplify the cDNA for use in the Biomark using the C1 or you can take the material from the C1 and use it for sequencing, either um, RNA sequencing from the whole transcriptome, DNA sequencing for the whole genome. We actually have a flex flexible workflow that allows you to design any experiment you want onto the C1. And we've used that to do things like epigenetics and microRNA analysis. So C1 is very flexible. Um, the other system I'm going to tell you about today is the Helios, which is our current Cytoff system. Uh, it'll, it's the only mass cytometer on the market, and it allows you, allows you to do very high throughput, millions of cells, um, protein expression quantification from millions of cells and many parameters simultaneously. How this works is you uh, label your single cells with metal-tagged antibodies. Those antibodies are encapsulated in droplets and shot into a nebulizer and then into a, a torch where they're heated very, very, very hot. And they're, through that process, they are vaporized, ionized, and atomized. They then go through a quadrupole to get rid of the ions you don't want, and then to a time of flight where you can uh, quantify the mass of each one of the isotopes that is uh, conjugated to each antibody. So in that way, you can quantify the uh, level of protein for each one of the proteins, and you can do dozens of proteins at the same time from the same cell, and then analyze them to see how they compare. One of the really great things about the Helios is that in this analysis window we have here, we're just comparing two parameters, element A and element C. The real power of the system is you can compare dozens of parameters at the same time. So you could have 17, 17 antibodies for blood phenotyping in addition to all the antibodies you want for cytokine profiling and any other targets you might be interested, signaling pathways and so on. You can also barcode the cells, so you can um, combine several runs together. You can uh, quantify the DNA to get rid of any debris or anything like that, in addition to cell cycle markers and dead cell markers. And uh, you can also add things like normalization and any other parameter. So all of these uh, processes can be done at the same time from the same cell, and there's actually room for more on the Helio system. So the real power of the Cytoff it's to be able to do many, many parameters, way more than you'd be able to do by any other method at the protein level, simultaneously from the same cell. So this, uh, this ability to look at many parameters is really vital to doing single cell research. And all of our systems kind of sit in different places. The Biomark lets you do things 96 cells at a time, and it looks, you, it looks at uh, qPCR, so um, targeted mRNA profiling. The C1 allows you to do now hundreds to thousands of cells, using our new HT chip, and it can be used to prepare uh, material for RNA, DNA, and microRNA. And the Helio system lets you look at millions of cells at the, with, against dozens of proteins. So in all cases, by looking at a lot of parameters and a lot of cells, you can get much more confidence in your, uh, the data, and that data can lead to really powerful biological insights.
So now I'm going to, over to pass it over to Jonathan, who can tell us about some of those amazing biological insights you can get from doing things at the single cell level. Great. Thank you very much. So I'm going to talk about applying this to human solid tumors, uh, high dimensional analysis of tumors. So my disclosures are shown on that slide. And I've organized my talk into two sections. So the first section will focus largely on the data analysis. And what I see is this big opportunity to apply high dimensional single cell technologies um, in clinical research and to develop true tools that do machine learning of cell identity. In the second half of the talk, I'll refocus on neural origin cancers, including melanoma, and talk about systems cancer immunology, dissecting out the cancer cells and the interacting immune cells. And this comes out of my background, which is clinical research, signaling analysis, and computational analysis. So my PhD in Gary Nolan's lab was really focused on dissecting JAK-STAT signaling and using this to stratify AML patient clinical outcomes. And then my postdoc in Ron Levy's lab focused on B-cell receptor signaling and T-cell signaling and looking for signatures both in the cancer cells and the immune microenvironment that would stratify patient outcome. And while we were doing all of this work, it was really critical to develop big data analysis tools. And so we created Cytobank, which is a cloud platform for single cell analysis. And so using all of this background and applying it now with mass cytometry or CYTOF, it's really powering this new era of single cell systems biology where we can dissect human, all the different cell types in human tissues and really come to a comprehensive understanding. And I see these tools as part of a long tradition where technology advances are powering our understanding to see new types of cells and reveal things that were overlooked before. And so if we think back hundreds of yeah, hundred years ago to the identification of mononuclear phagocytes, this was really driven by light microscopy technology, which now is somewhat low throughput, low speed in terms of cell numbers and low dimensional. But as time has gone on, we've added more and more features that we can measure at the single cell level. And each time we do that, it increases our resolving power to reveal new types of cells and to understand more about the biology. And in 2011, there was a really landmark paper that came out of Gary Nolan's lab by Sean Bendel and Aaron Simons, where they took apart human bone marrow and extracted the hierarchy of all of cellular development from healthy human bone marrow. And this, a large part of this was myeloid cells. And most recently, we saw a 38-dimensional analysis by Evan Newell and colleagues, um, where they applied a data analysis tool called PSNI to reveal all the different cell types uh, within murine myeloid cells taken from many different tissues. And so where we're going with this is this ability to comprehensively describe cell types present in any tissue. And I think we're driving towards a time when we'll have high dimensional panels to look at all the types of cells and we can look at healthy tissue and disease tissue over time and use the healthy tissue to create reference models and then look at how things are perturbed or altered in disease. And so I talked about this in a news and views in nature immunology where I likened it to uh, getting a comprehensive satellite view of all the different cell types uh, arranged in continents. And you'll see this type of view as I introduce Disney and Tisney later. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So I see this as a real turning point, opening up some clinical science opportunities. So 
one of the key things is that we can increase the knowledge that we gain from every patient biopsy that we get. So every cell, we want to get the information that we can out of that cell and learn what it's telling us. And I think that this will really power our ability to accelerate from discovery to treatment by learning in vivo. And what I mean by this is if we do a clinical trial, we use the tissue that we obtain from that to see what's working and what's not working and to optimize. And we do this in parallel with research models, but we use the human tissue to make sure that the research models make sense and are relevant. So if you're a training scientist, I would say there's some really key growth areas, and these are in dissecting out cell identity and what do we mean by cell identity, capturing the context, not just of your disease cells, in my case I'm really focused on cancer cells in this talk, but also the stroma or all the other cells present in a tumor and the infiltrating immune cells. I would say that it's really vital to develop new computational tools, modeling, and true machine learning, and to make sure that all of our work is relevant to in vivo, and in my case, to human health. And I'm not the only person thinking about this. This is a really big topic right now, and I was excited to see this review in Nature Immunology where the cytome has now made it onto the map. And so the cytome is unpacking all the different cells that are present in a tissue, all the different types of cells. And so cell type is now something that we can look at in an omic way, along with proteins, cell signaling, and transcript. And so I don't need to spend a lot of time introducing the CYTOF instrument because Manisha did a great job. I'll just say that one of the, so we use metal conjugated antibodies as reporters. We can measure 35 different features of every cell, anything that an antibody can detect. And one of the key things is the low amount of spillover between the different channels that allows us to get currently 35 things commercially very easily um, measured at the single cell level. So in my lab at Vanderbilt, we focused on developing mass cytometry for immune cells and for neural origin cells, as you'll see in the talk today. We're also working with collaborators that are studying all other types of cells, including epithelial cells, and we have a paper in press on this topic that will come out very soon, and fibroblasts. And if you're interested in all the different things that we can measure, I'd highlight this review by Tian Doxy and myself um, that came out that talks about both fluorescence and mass cytometry and all the things that can be measured at the single cell level and how this has been applied in cancer. So one of the challenges or opportunities of this type of data is that it really creates a flood of information at the single cell level, and this can be really overwhelming. So this figure is meant to illustrate just looking at one sample at all the different features that we measured in this trellis plot. And this creates a lot of 2D plots, but it doesn't reveal all of the multidimensional loops or shapes that are present in the high dimensional data. So it's really important to use dimensionality reduction tools. And so how we felt when we came to the data was a little bit like this Lego minifigure that I adapted from our five-year-old's uh, Lego instruction manual. And so we got some CYTOF data, some mass cytometry data, and we were really excited. And then we realized, whoa, that's just a ton of data. And so in this analogy, the Legos are cells. And what the instructions suggest that you do is separate the cells based on their phenotype or separate the Legos based on their phenotype. And that's what VISNI allows us to do, is it creates this 2D map of cells that are most similar to each other um, that kind of looks like these little piles of Legos. And hopefully from that, we can start to build knowledge about our system. So this is an example um, of healthy human blood 
where we measured 26 different surface markers that were just the major canonical immune lineages and separated out the cells into a Visne map. And so each white dot here is a cell, and they organize into these islands according to the major type. And how Visne or TSNE works is it calculates a high-dimensional similarity score. So it looks at every cell and it asks how similar it is to all of the other cells in the sample. And then it scatters the cells in two dimensions and progressively optimizes their position in 2D. It moves them around until their 2D similarity score is as close to the multidimensional similarity score as possible. And it can work in other dimensions, 1D or 3D, but it, we really like 2D. And so the animation just repeated, and you could see the randomness, and now it's spreading out and resolving the information that's present phenotypically within the cells. And at the end of it, phenotypically similar cells form islands or groups within it. And so I have a version of that where we've backgated the information that an expert would see onto the 2D Visney map. And so on the left, you can see my expert identification of, for example, CD45RA positive and negative CD4T cells in orange and green. And so if you just follow those two populations over here on the Visney map, here's the first step where the cells are scattered into 2D randomly. And then here's iteration number 45. So we've moved them around 45 times, and we're starting to resolve some of the information. And as the iterations progress, we can start to see better and better resolution of that CD4 T-cell island. And by iteration 262, we've got really good resolution of that, that population, which is most of the cells in this sample. By 289, we're almost done. And by 500, it's starting to look really good. So we have almost all of our major cell identity cell identity figured out. And by iteration 999, it really doesn't look that different. If I click between them, it looks nearly the same. Um, and so maybe we could have stopped earlier, and that's something that we're looking into. But what I'd like to point out are the cells in blue, which are cells that weren't identified by the expert, that sort of peek through. And one example is this stripe between our 45RA positive and uh, positive and negative CD4 T cells. And these are the cells that fell between the two gates that I drew, because my gates didn't perfectly run up against each other. And what this is revealing is that there's actually a continuum of cell identity and maybe other types of cell subsets present within there that are different from what we expected. And this has been highlighted repeatedly in the papers about TSNE and high-dimensional analysis by both Donna Pear's group and Evan Newell's group. And in both of these papers, now in gray, there were large populations of cells that came through the backgating that weren't identified by the expert but were grouped into phenotypically similar islands by this type of unsupervised analysis. And this is really powerful at revealing these cell types. And so uh, the Newell group wrote a very nice paper identifying what these three islands of previously unidentified cell types were. And the take-home is that nearly half the sample can fall into these unknown or hidden islands, these cytoincognito. And so what we've developed in my lab, and this is from a methods paper by Kirsten Diggins in my group, is a sequential workflow that combines uh, unsupervised tools to provide a, a comprehensive analysis of our samples. And so we start with blood or marrow from uh, a patient. We use very minimal uh, cleanup to identify the cells. Then we use FISNI 
to project the cells into two dimensions, dimensionality reduction. And then we use SPADE to cluster the cells into populations. And we do this on the T-SNE axes, so on the dimensionality reduced data. And then in the fourth step, we take the populations identified by SPADE and we get a high level view with a heat map that shows the protein signature of every cell subset. And this makes it easy for us to do statistical testing to compare the clinical features of patients or other features of the cell subsets. And so if you're interested in teaching yourself the data analysis, we've recently put all of the data from this paper um, online. So you can get the data at Flow Repository, but we've also created a step-by-step -step walkthrough on my lab's website. And so the organizers have provided that link. And if you're interested, you can go and download a PDF that walks through step-by-step -step the analysis. And you can access the data on Premium Cytobank, where you can sign up for a free one-month trial and uh, run Visney and Spade and explore that data set on your own. And so what that looks like uh, is shown here, where we've highlighted every step that you would click in Cytobank in order to do your own Visney, Spade, and heat map analysis. And so just to conclude from this first part of my talk, we use a workflow data analysis that begins with FISNI or other dimensionality reduction um, on minimally pre-gated normalized mass cytometry samples. In the second step, we use spade and clustering on the T-SNE axes. And in the third step, we use heat maps or other tools to compare with other data and to do statistical testing. And I'd really encourage people to think about these modular workflows where we can plug and play different tools at each step and compare them to each other. And I would say, you know, I've highlighted a few tools here. There are many fantastic tools out there, um, several created by Mark Davis's lab, as well as Gary Nolan and Donna Payer that I didn't talk about. Um, many of them are reviewed in this paper. One of the things that's missing are computational tools, though, that can learn cell identity, that can not only move cells around and group them into populations, but give us a label for what those cells are in an unsupervised way, and maybe even suggest these are CD4 T cells or these are memory T cells. And so to move on to the second part of the talk, we're now going to apply this type of approach to look at a systems level view of cancer cells and immune cells in neural origin cancers and especially melanoma. And so the idea here is that we would start with multiple tissue samples from a patient. They might be samples over time or tissues taken from different uh, compartments like the tumor and the blood. And we want to obtain a cytomic view of all of the different cell types that are present within that tissue. And I'll show both mass cytometry analysis as well as um, single cell qPCR analysis using the uh, C1 Biomark system on melanoma tumors. And then ultimately where we're going with this is we want to model how cells are interacting with each other and with treatments to understand how different populations of cells influence clinical outcomes in patients and how we can improve those clinical outcomes using different treatments or combinations. So our hypothesis is really that modeling all of the cells in the system before and after treatment will reveal the underlying cellular mechanisms of therapy response and resistance. But we start with a correlation, and the correlation is in causation. And so we use all of the data and we learn from the data and we find the strongest correlations but then it's very important to follow up on that and to dissect which things are causative underneath. So with this high-dimensional approach, I think that there are several key opportunities for cytomic profiling 
during therapy. And so these are highlighted here. So even with 35-dimensional single-cell analysis on millions of cells, we still need to focus our question on something. And so we might focus the question on the interaction of the cancer cells and the immune signaling network, which might give us a broad view. We might be very interested in monitoring specific types of cell signaling interactions, let's say um, T cells interacting with antigen-presenting cells and all of the co-stimulatory and inhibitory molecules that might be part of that relationship. We might want to pick one type of cell and really drill down deeply into the immunophenotype of that type of cell and ignore other types of cells in the tissue. Or we might want to get at the intracellular signaling network or functional outcomes within a cell. And all of this is possible with mass cytometry. And one can mix and match all these different levels. So for melanoma, one of the key challenges is that we don't have as many outstanding CD markers as in the immune system. There are many critical intracellular or other markers where we need to still develop antibodies that work by flow cytometry and uh, imaging cytometry. And so one of the first things we do is we go to the human protein atlas and we ask, um, we look at histology to ask which things are enriched within the cancer cells that might help us tell apart uh, either normal melanocytes or melanoma cancer cells from all the other types of cells that we see in the tissue. So in my talk, you'll see nestin, which is a neural cell filament that's expressed embryonically, but in adults, it's primarily restricted to neural stem cells. You'll also, and so this will be a key marker of melanoma cells. You'll also see the NGF receptor, um, which will help us mark melanoma cells, but is present on many other types of cells. MCAM, or the melanoma cell adhesion molecule, and the CKIT receptor tyrosine kinase. And with a combination of all of these different markers, we can really nail cell identity and also move immune cells out with other markers. That we so our physical sample protocol is shown here where uh, tumors come straight from the OR, so immediately following biopsy or surgical resection, and then we mince and digest them with a collagenase-based protocol. And then pretty much after that, it's the same as how you prepare a lymph node or a tonsil sample um, or a lymphoma tumor. So a straightforward protocol where we filter the cells to remove large clumps, we clean it up to remove debris, platelets, and red cells, and then we viably cryopreserve live cells. And by this point, all of the debris and all of the you know, other things have been removed from the sample, and we have high-quality live cells that can be used for signaling experiments or that can be sorted and used for other experiments where we go back and look um, after we've identified all the cell types. And I don't have time to get into all of the details, but we do extensive preparatory work testing out different conditions for disaggregating the tumors and as well for optimizing antibody staining. And so this is just kind of giving a snapshot of, um, in this case, I think it was 28 different conditions that we'd looked at testing disaggregation. And you can see it really impacted differently the number of live cells that we could acquire per gram of tissue. And this was an example from a glioblastoma tumor, which is another type of neural origin tumor. And to show a little bit of the data that we got from this glioblastoma example, I'm showing here nine different markers of neural and immune lineages on all of the viable tumor cells that we obtained. And so this is a high-dimensional single-cell view of a human glioblastoma tumor. And you can see CD45 marking immune cell subsets on this FISNI map. And so the heat here is for CD45 expression. Down here, we can see that the heat 
for CD3 is marking two T-cell subsets, and then we could see CD8 is marking that subset. So we can see some of our well-known subsets. We can see CD31 positive endothelial cells, and then we can see this wide expanse of what are tumor cells expressing NCAM or CD44. So I won't spend much more time talking about glioblastoma. I'll really talk about melanoma. So this is an example of a melanoma patient's tumor analyzed by fluorescence flow cytometry. And we do a lot of validation work in parallel with both fluorescence and mass cytometry. And so here you can see CD31 on the y-axis and CD45 on the x-axis. And so CD45 marks the leukocytes, CD31 the endothelial cells, and pretty much everything else was MCAM-positive melanoma cells within this particular tumor. And you can see the spread of MCAM in the tumor compared to what we normally see on a melanoma cell line. And this is characteristic. And from sample to sample, different markers will mark the melanoma cells within each tumor. One of the reasons mass cytometry is so powerful for melanoma is that it avoids the intrinsic autofluorescence of live melanoma cells. And so this is fluorescence cytometry of unstained cells from a primary or metastatic site from the same patient, as well as a melanoma cell line. And what you can see on these open cytometer channels is that there's very bright fluorescent signal off the 488 laser that we might interpret as real staining if we didn't know better. And so mass cytometry completely avoids this because it's not fluorescence-based. And so now I'm going to walk through analysis of melanoma tumors, first using traditional bivariate analysis for the tumor infiltrating leukocytes, and then second using um, spade and computational analysis for the melanoma cell subsets. And so here we're looking at CD45 versus the nucleic acid intercalator that we use to mark cells in mass cytometry experiments. And so you can see in healthy human blood on the left that all the cells are CD45 positive. Um, and then on the right, we can see CD45 positive cells are less common. And if we gate on that subset, it doesn't look like much, but there's a lot of information in there. So we can see that this is a myeloid cell subset that expresses CD33. Then within the negative cells, we can see that many of them are CD3 positive. If we continue the analysis with CD3 versus CD16, we can see that they're primarily CD3 T cells. And if we look at CD45 RO versus CD4 or CD8, we can see that they largely express a memory-like phenotype and are greatly enriched for CD8 T cells compared to what we might see in a healthy lymph node or in healthy human blood, where there's much more diversity of CD45 RO versus the different cell types. And so if we quantify the abundance of CD45 positive cells across many different examples of tumors, and so here I'm just showing 12 different melanoma tumors and the leukocyte counts in red and the melanoma cell counts in blue, and these are primary tumors and lymph node tumors, you can see that there's huge variation. And so a sample level analysis won't really work. We'd at least need to separate out the immune cells and the melanoma cells. But with this high dimensional approach, we can see all the different immune cell subsets as well as the different melanoma cell subsets. So I don't have time to go into the immune cell side too much more. I really want to focus on the melanoma cells and an important new population of melanoma cells that we've identified. And we've actually used many different analysis tools on this data set. So we've used VISNI and SPADE. And I'll show the examples with the SPADE analysis today. And so SPADE finds clusters of cells on the melanoma tumor cells. And so each patient 
we've used SPADE to give them their own SPADE tree. And each circle is a population of cells. The size of the circle is how many cells were in that population, and the heat is a marker that we measured. So for example, you can see Nestin and CD45 nicely separate out our melanoma cells on the left in this example and our tumor infiltrating leukocytes on the right. And within the CD45 positive population, you can see CD3 T cells, and within that, a large number of CD8 expressing T cells. In the Nestin side of the map, you can see that there are Nestin high, medium, and low cells. And these cells are also marked by CD44, CD49F, which is a nice marker within melanoma, and MCAM. And so if we kind of draw a map of the cell identity within the sample, the pink shows the melanoma cell side of the map, and the blue shows the immune cell side, and we separated out these major cell subsets. So that's one patient's example. So here's another patient. And so again, each patient is going to get their own tree with its own shape, but we see the same populations of cells, and those populations often have the same phenotype from patient to patient. And we can remap them on the same tree, which I'll show again later if that's important. And so in this case, we saw the antigen-presenting cells here. So you can see there's CD45 high, and HLADR would have marked them, but it's not shown here. And then we can see the CD3 T cells were the other major branch. And then within the melanoma, there was extreme diversity. So we saw CD44 throughout the tumor cell portion, um, but very high and intermediate levels. We saw Nestin very high, low, and almost negative cells and as well NGFR expression spread throughout there. And this example was largely MCAM negative. And so from patient to patient, we see this heterogeneity, but can we track this over time as patients are treated? And so we had this really amazing opportunity through a surgeon, Mark Kelly, and through our melanoma clinic run by Jeff Sossman here at Vanderbilt, where we would get samples over time as patients were treated with a BRAF V600E mutation-specific inhibitor or a combination of that inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor. So in this case, before any treatment began, we got a core biopsy, and then they underwent two weeks of treatment on the BRAF-specific inhibitor, and then another core biopsy was taken, and then at the end, the tumor was surgically resected, and the tissue was brought directly to the lab for mass cytometry analysis. And so this shows our data analysis workflow for one patient, and I'm going to focus on the CD45 low or negative melanoma cells, and we'll create one spade map, one spade tree for each patient. And what we're looking for is the differences phenotypically from the pretreatment sample and the post-treatment sample. And so in the post-treatment sample, we called those cells the persister cells. And we wanted to know what the phenotype of those cells was like and how, whether it was shared across multiple patients. And so we also identified the regressor populations, which are the populations of cells that went away, um, that weren't there post-treatment. So if we look at four different melanoma patients, and now the samples over time are going vertically, we can see really striking differences from patient to patient. So right now, each patient has their own tree. And so I'll point out melanoma patient 54, where there really weren't major changes phenotypically from time point to time point. And so we could say that phenotypically the tumor didn't change much. We don't know yet whether that corresponds to a lack of response clinically, so I'm not going to talk about that. 
If we look at the other patients, we see much bigger phenotypic changes. So patient 23 was really unlike the other three samples in that it was very diverse and it changed in ways that the other ones didn't. So after the first treatment, it changed dramatically and then it changed again after the BRAF and MAT combination treatment. So if we ask, what were the common features that stratified the persister cell subsets from the regressor cell subsets? That's shown here on the right. And so since we were looking at many different hypotheses for which proteins could correlate with being a persister cell subset across patients, we lowered our significance threshold using the Bonferroni correction. And three things in this very small data set uh, met that significance threshold, Nestin CD44 and MCAM. NCAM and many other markers were on the line, and I think some of them might be significant as well. And so if we look at the direction of the change, Nestin, CD44, and MCAM all went down, and Nestin went up. And so one of the common questions that I got is, are these the same changes across patients? And so what we can do is actually remap the same data that we were just looking at onto one common spade tree, and now ask whether the patients share the same phenotype and are changing in the same way. And so this is one tree that unifies all the different patients. And you can see, again, patient 54 isn't changing and is largely in this lower right population that's going to mark the resistant or persister cells. Patients 19 and 22 start near the top, but a little bit spread into the bottom. And you can see post-treatment are greatly enriched in that bottom right population. And patient 23 is different in that it starts up in the top and it moves by the end of treatment down into the bottom, but into a different part phenotypically where it shares some things in common, like loss of Nestin, but it's phenotypically distinct in other ways. So these Nestin low melanoma cells are a very common feature of primary tumors. So if we look across multiple patients or across multiple samples from one patient, we can see a large number of Nestin low or negative cells within the primary tumors. But in melanoma cell lines, these cells can be very rare. So you can see the green part of the pie is as high as maybe 12% or 13% and as low as 2.5%. So this could be either good news because we can see the cells in cell line or bad news because the cell lines, these long-term established cell lines, aren't capturing what's going on in the primary tumors. And so that's something that we're really interested in looking into, but I won't have time to talk about that today. What I do want to talk about is how we can combine protein and transcript analysis to look at more questions at the single cell level. And one of the things that we were really interested in is are those nest and low cells really melanoma cells because they're missing a lot of the canonical melanoma cell markers. So some of the key markers that we would need are markers like SOX2 or SOX10 or MITF that are key specifiers of the melanocyte or neural lineage program. And some of these we've developed antibodies for now, but at the time we developed a, a way to look at transcript within these cells. And so for this, we used a, a pilot test of the C1 capture instrument from Fluidyme, where we captured 96 cells microfluidically and then amplified 96 chosen targets by quantitative PCR within those cells. And we chose our targets to overlap with the proteins that we'd measured by Cytoff so that we could compare the data side by side. And the samples that we put into this analysis were two different samples, one of which was a mixture of two melanoma cell lines. 
So all of the cells in red um, are represented with open circles and are a mixture of 33% M299 cells and 66% WM115, which are two different melanoma cell lines. And so in this principal component analysis, where we're just looking at the first two components, we can see that the M299s nicely separated out far away from the WM116s, which were close to the primary patient's melanoma tumor cells, which expressed more diversity and were, but were close to one of the cell lines. And so there was some good news for cell lines here. So, and you can see that even though these samples were run on the instrument together, they clustered farther apart from each other. So if we continue at the sample level analysis, now what we're looking at on the left is the qPCR data, and on the right is the protein mass cytometry data. And I've tilted my histograms into the wide axis to look sort of like these violin plots that we get for the qPCR data. And so we're asking for each marker that we measured that was shared, whether an analysis by transcript matched what we saw by mass cytometry. And we were pleasantly surprised to see how much they matched because we were only expecting about 50% concordance from the literature. And so this might have to do with the particular targets that we chose to measure. But if we look at the NGF receptor, for example, 66% of the cells are on the high end, 33% are on the low end, and that really nicely matches what we saw by mass cytometry for these two cell lines. Similarly, for the patient, we can see this nice spread where the middle of the data is similar uh, by both protein and by qPCR. So that was one of our favorite examples was NGFR. And we saw similar results for nesting, which we were happy about. But the power of the qPCR was that we measured so many different targets that there were many other canonical markers that we could go after. So we could see great SOX2 and SOX10 expression. NANOG was an interesting surprise. And MIDAF, one of the key specifiers of the melanocyte lineage. And if we look within the patient sample, there was still this little population of cells that were low uh, for some of those persister that we think might be those persister cell subsets. And so if I dive down into the single cell data, that was the sample level analysis, we want to see those single cells and we want to ask what they're like phenotypically. And so this is an, a heat map of every single cell in the columns and all of the markers that we measured in the rows, and I'm just pulling out some of the key markers that we measured here, so CD44, NCAM, and MIDF, and there was this really cool cluster of markers of BRAF, SOX10, and Nestin that was near a SOX2 cluster, and so I'm going to zoom into that a little bit on the next slide. And so now, again, we're looking at the cells. The green triangles are the cells from the primary melanoma tumor. The red circle are one of the melanoma cell lines, and what we were wondering was, are the nest and low cells, so this is a z-score, so blue are the low cells, white and red are the high cells, um, do they express SOX10 or SOX2? And so if we look at all of the nest and low cells, uniformly they either express SOX2, SOX10, or both. And so we can really nail their identity as of the melanoma cell lineage. And we can also start to get at things like, are they cancer stem cells, or are they phenotypically similar to other types of populations that have been identified? And I'm sort of avoiding labeling them as cancer stem cells or as resistor cells, because I think of those as functional definitions. And at this point, we're really phenotypically describing the cells. And so what we need to do is the additional sets of experiments to dissect how these cells behave and how they signal. 
But with just a few more minutes, I'd like to give one more story from our melanoma data set, um, which is to get at the immune cell side of things with this systems immunology approach. Um, and so this was a case study of just one patient where the high dimensional analysis revealed something completely different from what we were expecting. And so um, what we're going to see is that we revealed myelodysplastic syndrome, MDS, that was present in the blood of a melanoma patient who was receiving anti-PD-1 therapy. And I don't think the therapy is relevant to what we saw here. It was just that the high dimensional approach revealed something that was pre-existing in that patient's blood. And so what we're looking at are traditional uh, bivariate plots of mass cytometry data with CD45 on the y-axis and three different myeloid lineage markers on the x-axis. And our data analysis had been focused on the T cells, B cells, to some extent myeloid cells, and maybe looking for some melanoma cells in the blood. Um, we were definitely not looking for MDS, and the clinical flow didn't notice the MDS until the blast counts got a little bit higher at six months post-treatment but we noticed them right away. So even rare populations of 1% of the sample can really stand out in this high dimensional analysis and when you go in with an unsupervised view. And so I think this just highlights the power of an unbiased, comprehensive approach to look at all the different types of cells that are present within the tissue. So to conclude for the melanoma cell side, a cancer systems immunology approach can reveal new types of cells and clinically significant cell types. Our, one of our big biological features was loss of nest in protein expression, which we didn't expect because we think of nestin as a neural stem cell marker. That was a key feature of the melanoma cells that persisted in vivo following BRAF and MAC targeted therapy. And we don't know yet whether this represents a direct response to the treatment, a reprogramming of cells, or a selection for a subset. These clinically significant melanoma subsets that we saw in primary tumors were not well captured by established cell lines, and we're looking now to see whether xenografts or short-term passage cell lines capture them better, and there is some hope there. Um, and I would just highlight that the cellular environment, the host context, and immune interactions are just a really critical part of cancer biology, as we know from the, the profound impact that anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4 immunotherapies have had in cancers like melanoma. So just to finish, I'd like to acknowledge my funding sources that are shown here and my outstanding lab members and collaborators, and I just highlight Dion Doxy, who did the melanoma cell side of the melanoma story, Ellie Greenplate, who did the immune cell side, Kirsten Diggins, who's our data analysis expert, and Nolan Lilatian, who worked on the glioblastoma project and my collaborators are shown on the back. And with that, I will hand the presentation over to our hosts, and I would love to take any questions. Thanks, Manisha and Jonathan. That was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box on the right of your screen. So the first question that we, I have is from um, Jin Lu. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. And it's how many cell types have C1HT chips been tested on? Um, I think that question's for me. So we've tested them on at least 10 different cell types at this point, and then uh, the number is expanding every day. So I would say between 10 and 20. And I might add philosophically, how many different cell types are there? I think that this is a very open question. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we've done it on all different immune cell types and as well as solid. Cell types. 
Okay, and this question is to Jonathan. It's from Fred Colling, and he's asking, have you or others used the VISNI on single-cell mRNA-seq or qPCR data with any success? And if so, do you see any major limitations to applying this technique to transcript data? So um, other people have, and people at Cytobank have applied it. Um, so Baron Bodenmiller's mass cytometry imaging paper shows SPADE on imaging single-cell data. Um, and there's another group that has done mRNA analysis using TSNI. I think if you search for um, fruit salad on YouTube, you might find a video of that particular analysis. So yes, I don't see any limitation applying it to those other data types um, as long as you collect uh, a data matrix where you filled in all of the measurements for all of the different cells and its quantity. Okay, and then this one is from um, Ibrahim Azizi, and he asks, um, what is your suggestion to preserve cell integrity, and in particular, phosphoprotein expression over the time of three to five days, especially when analyzing for CDCs from patient blood samples a few days after drawing the blood? Oh, yeah. So we do a lot of testing for stability, and we like to process the samples within hours and get the cells stable, which is to say either viably cryopreserved or fixed uh, with formaldehyde and often we store them long term very cold in methanol. Um, so that's one answer, but I sort of heard in that question, if you wanted to work with the cells over three to five days, I haven't tested those conditions myself. And you'd really want to test them for the specific sample types that you have in mind and the specific markers that you have in mind head to head against other things. Um, we like CPT tubes, for example, for sample prep. Okay, and Amanda Winter asks, is there a DNA amplification chip for the C1 in development to capture larger numbers of cells for genomic DNA analysis? I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? Sure. Is there a DNA amplification chip for the C1 in development to capture larger numbers of cells for genomic DNA analysis? So is there an HTK chip for DNA sequencing specifically? Yes. Uh, there's not one yet. We are working on it. It's a much harder problem because uh, when you amplify the whole genome, it's hard to um, barcode each one of those. So the way the RNA-seq HT chip works is that you barcode the three prime end of each transcript so they can all be pulled together. Uh, generally, when you're genome sequencing, you want to barcode more than just one end of the genome. So it's a much harder problem, but it is one that we're thinking about and working on. Great. That's really neat. Um, can Spade, so I've got another one. This one is from Sri Vatsava. Um, can Spade and Visni techniques be used to distinguish various populations of tumors, say metastatic versus non-metastatic? Uh, if they are phenotypically distinct, then definitely. So um, that's the key. So we've used it on anything we can get. You can get even maybe different samples within one tumor in different regions might have distinct differences in phenotypes, and you might be able to pull that out using spade and bisney. But absolutely primary and metastatic sites, there are phenotypic differences between them, especially in trafficking markers that can be pulled out by this type of unsupervised analysis with tools like spade and bisney. Fantastic. And this one's from um, Maria Livrand. Um, considering new technologies such as smart flare probes are coming into the picture, would such probes allow for non-coding RNAs to be used for cell type detection? And would you expect them to be significant in cancer subtype discovery? 
Um, is that for me or for Jonathan? <laughs> um, I think for either one of you, whichever one would like to take it. Um, I think that their smart flare technologies have a lot of potential. Um, I think there's still a lot of testing yet to be done. In terms of their ability to distinguish, I think Jonathan might be able to inform that a little bit more. Yeah. That I, I'm not sure. Maybe. I agree. I think there's a ton of potential. My understanding is that they're somewhat reliant on the cell's ability to take up the smart flare probe. And so you need cells that can eat the probe. And some immune cell subsets don't do that as well. But I don't, this is not my, I haven't done a lot of testing of those. And so I don't want to speak out of turn. Okay. Um, I've got one. I think this might be for a combination or might fall between a combination between both you and Manisha. Um, and this one is from oh, um, Aruni Kanolkar. And he said that it, I was very impressed with how quickly the MDS population is spotted by mass cytometry versus routine clinical flow. When do you envision, envision mass cytometry will be adopted in a clinical diagnostic immunology laboratories? Laboratories, And this is a, he's got another question here as well. Um, what are some of the technical constraints of the latest generation of mass cytometers that might preclude their incorporation in diagnostic immunology laboratory where turnaround times of patients' results are one of the critically monitored quality assurance parameters? Uh, great question. I, I love the direction that this question is going. And <laughs> I'm, I'm an optimist and an academic, so I'd love to see this technology move towards the clinic as soon as possible. I think we're probably a long way away from that. There's a lot of validation that still has to go into showing that it is getting the right answer, that it's reliable and all of that. But that being said, with my experience, I think that it's going to move quickly towards the clinic. I think it's hugely powerful for revealing much information and for, say, a very limited patient sample, it can maximize the information retrieved out of the cells that are collected. Um, I don't see a ton of limitations uh, compared to, say, uh, a workflow that already does flow cytometry, so say a blood immunophenotyping lab. Um, the key would be to just get the instrument in and, and really do a lot of work to validate. Okay. And Actually, speaking of validating or normalizing, rather, um, Ibrahim has another question. He asks, um, did you normalize single cell data, the QRT-PCR and the CYTOF experiment, to housekeeping markers? And if so, which method did you, or what method did you use? So for the CYTOF data, we do not normalize to housekeeping markers. It's quantitative, and we get a, an absolute count per cell of the metal that we see. Um, so for the qPCR data, um, the analysis was done uh, by Fluidime. It was part of a pilot test of the instrument, so I'm not sure uh, exactly how they did it. But it was a relative z-score um, for each marker that I showed. Yeah, and I can say that um, the Fluidime method does not use housekeeping gene normalization. Uh, the reason we don't use that typically is that the housekeeping genes can fluctuate, especially on the single cell level. They can vary over a thousandfold, so it's not a good reference for normalization. Um, if you do want to use housekeeping genes, I would use a lot of them, at least five if not more. We recommend normalizing it to the overall fluctuation, so looking at the um, entire magnitude of gene expression, figuring out what the median of that is, and then normalizing each cell so it has the same median. We call that median normalization for qPCR. But housekeeping gene normalization is generally not recommended. 
Okay, and then Maria has another question for Jonathan. Um, are you developing any other machine learning techniques for the single cell data analysis? Um, so we're, we're really working on coming up with a label for the cells that are identified. So at the end of it, you got this heat map or a cool spade tree or populations on Disney, and you're wondering what made those cells different. And so we've developed a label um, in work that I didn't have time to talk about that I think is sort of the first step towards machine learning because what we really need is a, a reference, many different reference data sets of what is healthy and what is abnormal so that the computer can be trained to understand at least our current knowledge of cell identity. We so just did a webinar. We just did a webinar for customers, 250 people. So um, I have a question for both um, you, for both Jonathan and Manisha. What are some additional considerations prior to setting up a single cell experiment? Um, I think it's very important to consider what your question is. Uh, it's also really important to know the um, characteristics of your cell, so like how, how you're going to prepare them into a single cell suspension prior to getting your extremely rare sample. So for example, um, I'm sure Jonathan worked out dissociation protocols before he got actual patient samples. Absolutely. Um, that's very important to do some of that groundwork in advance. And then to think about how you're going to analyze your data. So in terms of what question you're trying to answer. For example, if you're trying to profile cells, um, you want to look at as many cells as possible. And you maybe don't need to go, if you're doing a sequencing experiment, let's say you might not need to sequence them extremely deeply. So you might want to set up a, an experiment where you can look at as many cells as you can, combine them all together, and then do shallow sequencing, for example. If you have a target population in mind and you're trying to look at what the difference between that target population is under multiple conditions, then you might want to consider doing fewer cells but deeper sequencing or um, a slightly different panel for CYTOF or something like that. So I would, I would definitely recommend thinking about what your final answer looks like and then collecting data appropriately according to that answer. Yeah, and I would add to that and say, the sort of pie of how much time we spend on different things, the sample collection is just a tiny part, like 5% of that pie. And the, the rest of it is relatively evenly split between setting up all of the reagents, so validating and titrating the antibodies, getting the sample prep worked out, you know, all of that. And then on the, the other half of the remainder is the data analysis, which is to say looking through as an expert and using the unsupervised tools. So on the, the setup side, we do a lot of work with multiple technologies to really make sure that our antibodies, our quality antibodies, they're detecting the target that they should be, that our conjugates are working really well. And then we also spend a lot of time preparing the samples and showing that the samples are viable, free of debris, and that we haven't perturbed biology by preparing the sample. So those are some of the key things that we spend all that time on. Yeah, just to reiterate it, if for proteomic experiments, Deciding on and validating your panel is, is very important to do upfront. Um, and then for sequencing type experiments, for C1 experiments really, um, some of the unique things you need to think about there are the uh, size of your cells. So that's something you'd want to figure out in advance too, the diameter. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the seminar. Thanks again to Manisha and Jonathan for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsors, Fluidime.
And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminar's page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Fluidime and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.